Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, this podcast episode is brought to you by our sponsor, St. Gaster. So are you looking at getting your product into the hands of the right people, the people that are going to absolutely love it? Did you know that podcast advertising is literally 4.4 times more effective than the traditional display type of advertising? So if you're looking at really using podcast advertising, you may want to connect with Sencaster. So they've created this thing. It's called the Sencaster Podcast Marketplace, where you can connect as a brand or a company with the right type of creators. And again, you know, via Sencaster, you can connect with people like myself, where essentially we are putting ads of the brands and the companies that we absolutely love. So again, if you are interested in doing this, just go to send.ai forward slash dealmakers1, and that is a number one. And again, the team at Sencaster will be able to guide you in the right direction. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have very, very powerful co-founders, you know, that are joining us to share with us their story. I mean, they have built a rocket ship. They have a really big announcement also to share in terms of financing round that they're announcing to the world. And I think that you're all going to get very much inspired with their story. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guests today, Moses Law and Tessa Wijays. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. So let's do a little of a walk through memory lane here. So uh, Moses, you know, in your case, you were born in Singapore. So tell us about life growing up. I'm half Indonesian, half Malaysian. I was born in Singapore. Grew up all over Southeast Asia. Uh, then moved to Australia. Uh, did university there. Joined BCG. So made a lot of PowerPoint slides. Then went to Berkeley. Uh, short stint at Amazon. Uh, and then send it. So in your case, you know, BCG, I hear that there's a lot of people that uh, go into consulting and that get really great uh, education and training on how you're able to grab like one big problem and break it down into small little problems and then essentially tackle the small problems. And that really helps you to, uh, to go about execution as well. So how, how, what do you think that consulting has taught you about execution? For us, I think consulting teaches you the right way to think and you can help structure your thoughts. On execution, I think it was a bit lacking in the early part. Later on in, in my time at BCG, I remember telling a partner, I'll do a case if I don't have to make any slides. And the reason was I needed, I wanted to learn how to execute. So in that case, I was lucky to be able to, able to actually spend time with people on the ground actually doing work rather than just talking about doing work. And so I learned a little bit of execution there. The other things I did is I started two businesses on the side to teach myself how to how to start something and build. So I started a tailor-made suit business selling suits at uh, high price points. And I figured if I could learn to sell, that would help me wherever I, whatever I did next. And then I started a, a Thai business online to teach myself SEO um, on the side so that uh, I could learn how to get things ranked on Google. And why the U.S.? How do you land in the U.S.? You know, wanted to go to Berkeley and, and all of that stuff. Why the U.S.? Yeah, I wanted to come to Silicon Valley to learn how people think. Uh, I was in Australia, a small country. We kind of think about our part of the world. Uh, but coming to U.S. kind of changes your paradigm. One of my favorite examples here is when I was at Cal, I spoke with one of my professors in office hours. 
And I came with all these business ideas, things that I wanted to do. And my memory of it, he's a very nice guy, so I'm sure he was nicer than this, but my memory is five minutes in, he said, well, just stop talking. So I waited and he said, if your idea is not worth a billion dollars, don't talk to me about it. And I took that kind of as this, as this jarring kind of reprimand. But when I left the room, I thought about it more. And I was like, well, he expected me to come in with billion dollar ideas. So therefore, he's actually the first person to believe that I can come up with billion dollar ideas. Not my mom, not my dad, but my professor. So just an example of how Silicon Valley kind of totally changed my paradigm and mindset for startups. And in, 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 tell us about being introduced to Tessa. I know that it was a mutual friend. So how does Tessa come into the picture? Yeah, it was a mutual friend who uh, is actually a customer, has been with a customer for a long time, big fan of the business, tries out all our new products. And uh, I was, we were looking for kind of another senior person and he uh, mentioned Tessa. We met, I remember, in a Starbucks in a mall in Jakarta and it was uh, instant chemistry. Uh, we agreed on a lot of how things should work. Um, and, and that's how we met. Amazing. So then, so then, Tessa, in your case, you know, you were born in Indonesia. So, uh, so give us a walk through memory lane too. How was life for you there in Indonesia? Yeah, I'm uh, I'm homegrown. I actually grew up in a really small town in West Java. So, experience, you know, running around, flying kites, playing with pebbles. Very, very far away from big city life. Moved to Jakarta. Got sent off to school overseas. So I did live. In, in Sydney and in the U.S. for a little bit, um, decided to come back because I think, you know, that's Indonesia is where I could make a really great impact. I felt that, you know, I'd been given a lot of great gifts, being able to go school overseas, get a great education, and it was time to give something back. Landed in private equity, though, um, so a bit of a pit stop there. Uh, I worked in the first homegrown fund in Indonesia, so we were very proud of that. We had a lot of blue chip um, LPs or investors Got to look at a lot of investment, a lot of um, traditional companies being built in the market. And I thought that was extremely inspiring to meet so many entrepreneurs um, that were doing great things and got a little bit FOMO. So I was a little bit jealous. I was like, hey, I also want to be an entrepreneur. You know, Indonesia is a place where a lot of people start their own business. And I was like, I want to be there. Um, at the time, though, I realized, you know, I don't want to do something in the traditional space. I want to do something a little bit bigger. I think tech is going to be the way to go. Uh, I was meeting uh, a few people who were running e-commerce sites, and I was like, uh, I was flabbergasted, mind blown that it wasn't just about pretty clothes. It was about having the right algorithms to have your customers be able to choose the right colors that you like without having to search, you know, for pages and pages. And I was like, this is it. I'm sold. And then, yeah, I met Moses, and it was, I think, uh, work love at first sight. <laughs> So then in that case, I mean, for you, I mean, private equity, I mean, you guys have uh, backgrounds that are very interesting. I mean, some of the most successful entrepreneurs, they either have the consulting background, the investment banking background, or the private equity background. So in this case, you have two out of the three, which is um, very amazing. Now, in your case, Tessa, you know, for private equity, what would you say that experience gave you when it came to pattern recognition and to really understand the things that typically work well? from the ones that don't work well when you're looking at successful or not so successful companies? Yeah, look, first things first, whenever we're going to invest in something, we'll look at the founders. Uh, we look at their quality. Are they going to be able to get this business successful? Uh, you know, with PE, we're looking at traditional businesses. So we typically can see all the track record beforehand. We'll look at, you know, what, how they performed in the past few years. But I think, again, it comes back to who's running the business. 
which is kind of the principle I had when I was uh, trying to meet uh, co-founders or founders and tech companies. I looked at Moses and I was like, I think he can he can do good things. I think I can work with him. And that was how I ended up at Zendit. Yeah, she was pairing between a couple of options actually at the time, yeah. right? That's right. There were there were other founders who were like, yes, we want to build a business. Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, all in one go. I'm like, what do you mean? Um, this is Southeast Asia. We have like, what, about 25,000 islands. Indonesia, Malaysia, and Thailand are completely different. We don't even speak the same languages. And they were like, yeah, we'll run this through Singapore. I'm like, if you're not in market, you're not committed. So then I saw Moses in Starbucks and I was like, right, he's moved his family here. So he's committed. The other co-founder, Bo, he's also, you know, camped himself here. I was like, this is where I want to be. Um, this is who I want to work with. And, you know, there are a lot of exciting things in marketing. You have to be there to be able to grow the company. And yeah, that was it. So that was obviously the time where, where magic happened, no? And the co-founders, you know, came together. Now, in this case, you know, uh, Moses, you know, had like that idea dormant, you know, as they say, you know, they take time to incubate and then, you know, eventually he brought it to life and, and Tessa helped with uh, definitely shaping it and, and really becoming, you know, a team and bringing it with your, you know, all your employees, you know, to where it is today. But, but I guess, you know, Moses, when you had the idea there incubating, you know, what was that process like? What were the sequences of events all the way to that moment where you decided to give your notice, you know, while you were working at Amazon? Sure. So we uh, started with a, we, we started with a Bitcoin hackathon, Berkeley versus Stanford, Andreessen Horowitz sponsored. And we managed to win that hackathon. And so that was the first time I think we said as a team, we're going to do this. This is now worth our attention. We went into YC uh, with this Bitcoin remittance idea. This is the first time Bitcoin was cool in 2015. Uh, and uh, we sold them on the idea. Halfway through, we then realized we weren't getting the traction we needed compared to the average YC company. And so I remember Justin Khan, 12 minutes into an office hours, said, why don't you try Venmo for Indonesia? So then we pivoted again. Uh, within six weeks, we got 16,000 users. So this very fast ramp up in this, in this wallet space. And out of that, we managed to raise the seed from Excel and, and others. Um, and then at that point, we met, Tessa and I met. And then about four months in, we had about 200,000 users. But we figured that we didn't actually have the right uh, playbook to win in the long run. We didn't think we were the right actors. And so we invented this kind of experiment. Well, what was that experiment, Tessa? Tell us about that experiment. Yeah, look, I think when we were developing the wallet, it was clear that maybe it wasn't the right timing yet. The payment infrastructure wasn't really there. I came in, I was really bullish on payments, but I was also really bullish on serving SMEs. So I had started a side business of my own. I think, fun fact, by the way, uh, you see a lot of success stories of co-founders. You don't realize that they've probably started five businesses beforehand and failed, right? Um, that's a whole other podcast, probably. Um, yeah. Anyway, back to this particular story. I was like, okay, we'll do payments, but I want an SME spin. So basically, I wanted to make Shopify Lite. Uh, so a, a checkout page, a place where uh, SMEs can upload their inventory, send that link through WhatsApp, you know, and be able to sell to your customers. You have to remember that in, in places like Indonesia, a lot of transactions occur through social media. Uh, or through chat platforms. And that was what I was really passionate about. So Moses and I went, all right, let's race. Who can get that traction? Um, I made the Shopify light. Moses uh, created the APIs for um, the payment, our first payment products. 
And um, unfortunately, I lost. So that was very devastating. Um, two months in, I had to kill my product and, you know, I had to cry in a corner and come back. Uh, Moses obviously started out or kicked off the payment uh, infrastructure products that we have today. And yeah, that was it. So for the people that are listening, Moses, maybe to expand on that, what ended up becoming the business model of Xendid? How, how do you guys make money? We're the Stripe of Southeast Asia. So we help merchants accept payments, send payments, uh, also hold money. Uh, on top of that, we have a lending business and a fraud detection business and a back office automation business. So we've started with this payments platform and then built on top of it to serve the merchants around Southeast Asia. And as towards the building the team, I mean, Tessa, maybe what can you tell us about how is it different from building a team perhaps in, in Indonesia from maybe like what maybe people are more used to here in maybe the Bay Area for the people that are listening or in New York? How is it different there going about building a team? It's completely, completely different. When we started out in 2015, 2016, the startup scene was not quite as robust. Um, no one knew what a startup was. Um, and we were having a really hard time actually trying to recruit people. Uh, so what we did, I think one of our first employees, uh, we managed to convince to join Zendit. Uh, she was doing uh, customer support when installing our internet in our first office, which was actually a house. So we, uh, with Bravado, said, hey, why don't you come join Zendit, the startup that's going to do amazing things. She was like, hmm, let me think about that. And she did. So that was our very own, one of our very first employees. I think the other hack that we did when you're comparing to a place like the U.S., you have this deep bench of people that want to be entrepreneurs, people that want to join startups. It's the cool thing to do. I went to Cal, so out of Cal, everyone wants to do startups. But in, in, in Southeast Asia at the time, that's, that wasn't true. A little bit changed now. So we had an interesting hack. What happened for us is in Indonesia, Berkeley has really high recall uh, in terms of universities in the US and one of the best computer science programs on the planet. So we said, um, all right, let's do something a bit different in how we recruit talent. We went to the one school that produces technical talent at the time, only produces 150 devs a year, um, but it's the best school for it. And we said, the other hack we're going to do is couple our Berkeley with groups of friends. So we said, all right, Dear one group of friends, about 12 people, we'll give you all offers. We can't pay you as much as maybe a, a unicorn can or someone else can, but we will teach you to code like Berkeley taught us to code. And we thought maybe two or three people would take that offer, but all 12 took up the offer. So from one day, we went from like three people to, to 15. Um, and that became our very first engineering group. Uh, we then took that lesson and applied it around the region. So a startup went bankrupt in uh, my hometown where I grew up. We just hired the whole team. Uh, in our first set of product managers are actually lawyers that we turned into product managers and then we hired the whole friendship group. And so we have this history of trying to find what's a little bit unique about what we're doing or how we can approach uh, talent and get groups of friends at the same time. And for the first 250 uh, people that send it, we all come from these small groups of friends. Now in the U.S., you know, companies of this nature, you know, there's a lot of regulatory hurdles that you need to go through. So I guess, how does it work in Indonesia? Do you have like the, those type of uh, regulatory, you know, things that you need to overcome or, or, or how do you go about that, Tessa? Yeah, definitely. So look, um, I think that's one of the biggest challenges of operating in Southeast Asia. And again, I have to remind you guys, you know, there are startups in abundance in the U.S., 
when we first started out, tech was extremely new. We had basically one ride-hailing apps or two ride-hailing apps were just coming in. Regulators didn't know what was what, right? So it was probably a bit of a shock for them. Um, so for us, it's about um, about having that dialogue, about understanding how to understand what they care about as regulators, about talking them through, hey, this is what we want to do. This is how we're going to make an impact in the country. And I think, um, you know, they were also bought in the mission. They became very supportive of Zendit. Um, they have since actually crafted regulations about payments uh, after we started out, right? So we were one of the first um, to provide APIs for payments. Uh, and now, yeah, we've got a great relationship where we're working together to continue to develop new products in the country. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieberson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. Obviously, you know, a business like this requires money. So, uh, so Moses, how much capital has the company raised to date? And then also, what's going on? What, what do you guys want to announce today? We're, we've raised a total of $538 million to date. We're announcing $300 million uh, that we've raised. Uh, Kutu and Insider leading the round, I think two blue chip investors, uh, especially in an environment like this. And then they're coming in and joined by insiders like XL Partners, Kleiner, uh, Tiger from around the world. And then we also have regional and local investors coming in as well. Now, you're, you're throwing those numbers very lightly. I mean, when you hear those numbers, it's like going to the Oscars of, uh, of venture investors, right? I mean, it's like the who is who. So, I mean, being a company out of Indonesia, you know, and being able to raise money from the likes of Tiger, you know, Axel, Kleiner, I mean, it, it's unbelievable. So, so how did you manage to do that? How do you guys manage to do that? And then also, what was that uh, process or that journey from going from one financing cycle to the next? Yeah, lucky for us, the growth speaks a little bit for itself, but I'll set some context. In 2015, when we started uh, coming out of YC, I remember that we were talking to investors. Uh, we were trying to explain what Indonesia was, and someone asked me, is Indonesia in Bali? Um, and uh, Bali is a state of Indonesia, so it's quite the opposite. But I said, sure, if that will get me the meeting, then I'll sit down. 
Uh, and so there was just in 2015, just misunderstanding or, or little context about Southeast Asia at all. That's changed now with enough unicorns and three public companies from the region. Uh, but in 2015, that wasn't the case. And so we're the first Indonesian company into YC, uh, first investment for Excel and Kleiner for the US funds outside uh, into Southeast Asia. Um, and then for these other investors, some of the biggest checks into the region. Uh, so we're, we're breaking a lot of bamboo ceilings, maybe. Um, uh, in the in the valley so how do we do it i think we had some good mentors and yc has a great kind of method for fundraising uh but in the early days uh, i'd say for the seed round it's a pretty interesting set of stories the the idea here is that investors at the time invested mainly out of FOMO, and so um we kind of broke our investors apart we came in and we said hey we're raising a small amount of money we've already got angels um willing to play with us we just need kind of one more investor and we went round and uh, we went to three or four and we said, we really like you because of X, Y, Z reasons. And then uh, we left. And then two days later, this is the advice we were given. Two days later, we called and said, we need an answer from you within 48 hours. If you're not interested, that's totally cool. But we'll likely go with someone else. And uh, we kind of waited. This is the scariest moment because we we're just waiting. But 24 hours later, someone called and said, screw it, I'm in. And so we could go to the next set of investors and we could say, hey, we're raising a, a larger amount of money. We've already got a whole bunch of great investors. We kind of need just one more at this size. And uh, we really like you because of X, Y, Z reasons. Um, same playbook again, waited two days, called and said, hey, really like you, but uh, we need to make a decision pretty quickly. Um, totally cool if you're not interested, but we'll move on. And I remember one of the investors at the time in that category sat me down for lunch and was like, you're holding a gun to my head. I was like, I'm not holding a gun. I just want to do what value creating and actually run the business. And he was like, all right, screw it. I'm in. Uh, and then I remember we called kind of the Excels, the, the kind of Sand Hill Road firms that we all know the names of. And they said, oh, what about a meeting on Tuesday? And my mentor was like, don't book meetings Tuesday. At the time, partner meetings happen Monday morning. So I remember one Monday, drove down to Sand Hill, Rolls, Sand Hill Road, 7, 8, 9 a.m., 10 a.m., had four meetings on Sand Hill Road. Excel said, hey, we need you to make, uh, we're in, 12 minutes into the conversation, we're in, uh, we want to take the whole round. Um, I didn't agree to exactly on the spot, uh, but we negotiated something within 30 minutes. So that was the kind of seed journey for us. Now, I think that you were alluding to, Tessa, that, um, you know, the, the growth obviously okay. speaks for itself. So in this case, you know, like when, when you have that level of traction, I mean, what is the best way to really package it and positioning it so that you really get that wow factor from the investor and that you trigger, you know, the, oh, I want to I wanna be part of this thing? Look, I think um, as Moses brought up before, our biggest challenge in the beginning was, was not about the numbers, but it's about the region, Southeast Asia. Uh, we are kind of the dark horse, I think, of, of the investment world or the tech world because not a lot of people in the Valley know about it. Indonesia is the fourth most populous country in the world. 50% of all of the world's internet users coming from Indo. And yet a lot of people, like Moses says, are like, hey, is ba uh, Indonesia in Bali? Nobody knows about Indonesia. So I think a lot of our pitch was about painting that picture, about getting them to understand why are there pain points in payments? What's the big deal? Because in America, you can just pull out your credit card, make a payment online or offline. No big deal. Um, so we have to make them understand this is what Indonesia is like. Uh, this is a place where, for example, a connection from us to the partner, the bank partner, still runs by a real cable. So when that cable comes off, we actually have a photo that we've shown investors 
where I think someone was doing roadworks and chopped off a cable, and then we lost that connection to the bank, and that that brought down our infrastructure. Uh, we have to show those types of things to be able to get them to understand why what we're building is extremely, extremely important for Southeast Asia. So it's not about the numbers. It's about, hey, this is this is it. This is Indonesia. This is an amazing place to be. This is the place to go to now. If you're not here today, you're going to miss out. Especially in a macro environment like this, where you have people saying, oh, I'm losing subscribers, or where do I find the next engine of growth? And we've got the 650 million people sitting in Southeast Asia looking to buy goods and services. They want this rising middle income class. We want to buy a product and services from around the world. But these companies refuse to provide local payment methods. Um, and so I think the opportunity, there's this closing window of opportunity for folks to say, okay, you look at the history of Silicon Valley or, or digital economies around the world, the companies that exist now and grow now in Southeast Asia will be the ones that are biggest over the next 20, 30 year period in the fastest growing economies in the world. So come now to the region while you can, whether you're an investor or a company and someone like Senate can help. And so for us, from an investor point of view, you've got a market leader, category leader in an infrastructure business that is fundamental to the rise of the whole region. It's an easy decision. And, and just quick question there, just to expand to uh, Moses. For the people that are listening to really get an understanding of the size and scope of Accenture uh, today, I mean, anything that you can share in terms of maybe like number of employees or anything else that would paint the picture? Yeah, we've been growing about 10% every month since we started. We're processing about $15 billion US annually. We're doing about 200 million transactions annually, uh, team size of around uh, 800. Amazing. Now, you know, one thing that is very interesting here is, you know, obviously Moses, you know, is the one that leads raising the money. And then Tessa is the one that leads spending the money. So when now you have like all this, you know, capital available, I mean, it's, like they say, I, I believe that raising money is not a milestone, it's a stepping stone because then the expectations come to, to execute. So I, get a, I guess as part of the operations and the execution, when you have you know, that capital and that roadmap, how do you go about you know, really making sure that, uh, that you're going in the right way, in the right path? I think it's about aiming for that one goal. What do you want to hit as a company? For us, we have you know, uh, three things that we really want to achieve with the latest fundraise. One part is to really hit regionalization. What does that mean? We're now in Indonesia and Philippines. Actually, through COVID, we expanded to the Philippines, which is mind-blowing in itself. And um, throughout that time, we've become number one in the Philippines as well, which is extremely exciting. So regionalization is all about, we think we have the best product in class, and we want to be able to expand that out to other markets in Southeast Asia. We think that we can bring that same world-class technology um, to other countries in the market. So that's one part that we're really going to focus on. Uh, the second thing is we really want to expand out of payments into other things that support merchants to be able to come online. So what we've done is we're expanding on our lending product to be able to provide working capital for these merchants uh, and these small, big players. You know, we're there. We want to be able to provide the lending product for them. And the reason for that is this, again, Southeast Asia is a really unique place. Uh, in a place like Indonesia, getting a loan is extremely difficult. Me as a consumer, for example, for me to get a credit card, I just got rejected from applying for a credit card. Um, I think that was like half a year ago. And if I can't get a credit card, imagine everybody else. To be able to get a loan, you have to, you know, uh, oftentimes have collateral. And that's not possible for a lot of merchants. And, and, and you know, we see a lot of that information in our platform about merchants 
because we see the money pass through, right? Because we accept payments for them and we disperse funds for them. So it's a no-brainer. So that's the next thing that we're also going to focus on is the lending side. And then the third thing is um, providing more products for small businesses, for SMEs. I think we're also extremely excited about that because there are a lot of mom and pop stores who are you know, selling through Instagram, uh, maybe selling through social media. We want them to be able to accept payments as seamlessly as our, the bigger enterprise players that we serve. And as we're talking about execution here and the and the path forward, um, I'd like to hear your perspective, you know, from from the both of you. And let's start with Moses. Imagine you go to sleep tonight, and you wake up in a world, a beautiful world, a beautiful world where the vision of Send It is fully realized. What does that world look like? We talk about the mission as building digital infrastructure for the region, for Southeast Asia, and what that means is. Uh, we want the next generation of startups, enterprises, entrepreneurs to be able to launch their businesses without having to worry about infrastructure. So, I mean, payments, I mean, logistics, I mean, uh, lending, I mean, credit risk, I mean, data. Uh, we want people to be able to start and grow their businesses without having to worry about what's underlying. I'll give an example. We had a, a startup YC companies start with us and within a weekend we're able to onboard 100,000 merchants. You just couldn't do that without someone like this, someone like us. The same thing that AWS has done for compute, we're doing for payments infrastructure and other infrastructure. The other example is I remember I flew home to Jakarta, got off the plane and there's a long highway between the airport and the city, uh, but there were seven billboards and all seven billboards were our customers. So really this sense of how do we keep building infrastructure that the next generations of companies need to keep building our digital economies. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's about, you know, everyone has this dream of, of providing for hundreds of millions of people. Um, I'd love for us to be the super app for, for uh, merchants, for businesses. So anything and everything that they need to be able to succeed, to transact digitally first, um, they can provide or we can provide for them. Everything from accepting payments to lending and everything else in between, we're there for them. I mean, what really hit home was, you know, I follow some brands on Instagram because, you know, I love, you know, they're, they're, I love dogs. There's a, a dog bed brand from Bali. Uh, one day they announced, hey, we can finally accept payments in Indonesia um, in the local, local ways that payments are provided. And they announced this on their stories. And it was the Zendit invoice that they saw, that I saw on the mobile app or on Instagram. So, I mean, to see more of that, to see everybody using Zendit, all these merchants, and to be empowering them to be able to just transact and, and you know grow their business as well, I think that would be the dream. So you guys have been at it for over seven years now. You know, obviously in, in dog years, that's a lot of years, you know, building and scaling a startup, right? And there's a lot of lessons learned, you know, a lot of successes, a lot of failures, you know, everything in between. Uh, so imagine I was able to give you the opportunity or put you into a time machine and bring you back in time to a time where Moses is still working in Amazon, to a time where Tessa is still working in private equity, and to a moment where maybe, you know, each one of you is kind of like thinking, well, you know, I'd like to maybe explore this, you know, this other, you know, this venture thing, right? Imagine if you were able to have a sit down with a younger self, with that younger self, and you were able to give that younger self one piece of advice before launching a company. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Why don't we start with Moses? 
YC has this saying, build what customers want. And it took us a while to realize what that really meant. So I tell my youngest self, the rules for starting a startup, are you have three months, you have to launch and start growing 30% month on month within that time, which is about 7% week on week. And before you do anything, you have to talk to 30 customers. So pretty set a simple rule and framework. But it took us a while to really realize what that meant. And so I, if I had done that sooner, I think we've pivoted faster and, and got into product market fit faster. So now, Tessa, over to you. You have your younger self in front of you. What would you say? Yeah, I think I would say don't be afraid of failure because out of that, uh, success can also come. Uh, again, looking back at, at you know our race, Moses and I, um, obviously the product that I built, the Shopify Lite, failed miserably, failed miserably. But out of that, I learned a lot of things. Um, I learned how to build an FTP quickly. I learned about talking to customers. I learned not only about talking and asking questions, but about listening about what they want, which is sometimes not what they say, but the questions they ask or the questions they don't ask. Um, had I learned that earlier, I would have thought the Shopify Lite would be uh, would still be here today. Uh, but, you know, uh, I wasn't extremely devastated because the next product that I built became, you know, the, the biggest engine of growth for the next six months of Zendit. Uh, but again, don't be afraid of failure. As long as you learn from it, it's okay. Get back up and let's do it again. And I love what you're saying there, Tessa, if I may follow up on that. And, and listening, but listening for addressing the concerns that are in between you and getting things done. And I think that that's, you know, very much applicable to the way that you engage with customers to the way that you engage with uh, employees and future employees as well as with investors. So how do you go about that and what what have you learned? And maybe you know like you can, you know, tell us from what you've learned, you know, from the employee and also the customer point of view and maybe Moses can jump in and share what he has learned more from the investor point of view. Look, when I was um doing this very first product, um, what I realized was I wasn't listening to my customer. I would I would show them an MVP, a mock a version of our product, and I'd be like, would you use this? And customers, I think, especially in Southeast Asia, they're really shy. Uh, we're really scared of saying no. So they'll be like, yeah, maybe. Uh, but then, uh, you know, what we had at the moment uh, at the time was a web page where they could upload stuff. And over and over again, though, these customers would go, is this an app? Is this an app? And what I realized was, uh, um, what I should have done uh, in order to make this product was to create an app rather than an online platform. The customer was asking for that over and over again. They were a little bit confused, like, why are you making a web platform? We're used to having apps on our mobile phone. And I just said, oh, that was an innocent question. Maybe that you just didn't understand tech. And we chose to build a web platform rather than an app anyway, even after customers were asking that. So that was one big learning for me. When a customer keeps asking you something over and over again, Maybe that gives you a little bit of insight. And we should also be listening and iterating from that lesson. I think that speaks to how we've then since localized our product. I think there's a difference between us and global players who don't succeed in the regions. We're able to localize what we do. And I think the way that plays out for investors is the world is a power world distribution, not a normal distribution in reality. Peter Thiel talks about that. But when you are in the right end of a power world distribution, investors recognize it, fund it, and enables you to get even further ahead faster. And so the rate of acceleration and rate of growth grows even faster. So uh, I think starting with the micro that Tesla mentioned leads to the macro, which is power law. Very powerful. Now, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hello? Great. 
ping me anytime. My email is moses at sendit.co. Uh, for me, it's tessa at zenda.co, or you can also find me on LinkedIn. Amazing. Well, hey, guys, it's been an absolute honor to have you both on the Dealmaker Show. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.